Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. It is the 4th of January, and we are ploughing through the 12 days of Christmas. As you can probably tell, the sheer pressure of recording all these 12 days of Christmas podcasts has, has led to me partially losing my voice. Um, but that's fine, because Tom Holland loves to talk. No, but my voice is going as well. As oh no, hear. Tom, There's the Jeopardy. Se- sexy husk. Well, yes. Yeah. Uh, like Margaret Thatcher's voice. Is that what Yes, you're... very, very like that. Very like Mrs. Thatcher. Going very, 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 very rough voice. Tom, I think you've been doing splendidly. You've been doing wonderfully well. <laughs> Thank very you. Very pleased with you. Thank you. Uh, would you give us, please, your events that happened on this day in history and, and make it a good one, Tom? Yeah, so today is um, it's the day that Solomon Northrup regained his freedom, January the 4th. 1853 and solomon northrup will be yeah. familiar to anyone who has seen steve mcqueen's oscar-winning film 12 years a slave so this is um the, the terrible story of um black man in, in uh, born in new york state um freeborn um he's a farmer uh, he was also a, a very proficient violinist and this was the the, the key to what then happens um he's played by chibattle edgy four in the in the film um, and Solomon Northrup, he is, uh, so his mother is freeborn woman. Um, his father is a freed slave. There's absolutely no question about the fact, you know, he's not, he's not in any way a slave. He's yeah. completely a, a free man. Um, he marries, um, a woman called Anne Hampton, who's a kind of mix of, of black, white, Native American. Um, she's a cook. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're kind of, they're, I guess kind of, they're kind of lower lower class, but they're you know they're not on the breadline at all, right? Um, and uh, they have they're very happily married. Um, and in 1841, because as I mentioned, he ha- has this proficiency at the violin, he's offered as a job as a, a musician in Washington D.C. And Washington D.C. of course is that much further south, of course, than, yes. than New York, and so therefore closer to the line where where slaves um where slavery well, they have is big, still legal they have big slave markets i think in yeah. washington don't they and basically it turns out that um the people who've offered uh solomon Northrop this job are their crooks mm-hmm. and that they've offered him because they want to sell him as a slave so they um they, they get him to to washington dc under this false prospectus they drug him they kidnap him they sell him and he gets shipped to new orleans uh, and you can imagine it's just, I mean, the most terrible thing to happen. Uh, and in New Orleans, he is uh, bought by Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so uh, William Prince Ford, who is a Baptist minister. Yeah. Um, and Baptists generally, you know, certainly in the North, they're, they're very kind of abolitionists. They're very much at the kind of the front line of opposing slavery. And, um, Ford is a troubled slave owner, I think it would be fair to say. Uh, and in due course, when Northrop writes up his memoirs, 12 Years a Slave, he yeah. writes of, of uh, William Ford, in my opinion, there never was a, a more kind, noble, 
candid Christian man than William Ford, the influences and associations that had always surrounded him blinded him to the inherent wrong at the bottom of the system of slavery. It's kind of, from our perspective, an amazing couple very, of sentences yeah, for someone to write. Gracious, yeah. Yeah, a bit, but I mean, I think it brings home just how radical an upheaval the kind of the assumptions that come to underpin abolitionism are. Mm-hmm. People had taken the institution of slavery for granted for so long yeah. that it was perfectly possible to accept that a man could be um, a kind, noble, candid Christian man and still think that slavery was fine. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge theme that I think we're going to do an episode on slavery at some yeah. point. And it won't surprise you to know that I do think that the wellsprings of abolitionism are deeply Christian. Oh, and that's, Tom, I don't think you're alone uh, in that way. I mean, that's hardly, of all no, your views, that's probably the least controversial. No, but, 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 but obviously Christian arguments are also used to justify slavery. Yeah. Um, and so uh, this, this figure, for, you know, this, this Baptist minister is kind of an interesting figure for that reason. Yeah. Um, so what then happens is that Ford gets into financial difficulties and so he sells Northrop on to uh, this carpenter called John Tibbot, who is, um, he's, a, he's a wanker. Am I allowed to say, I used that word, didn't it's I? It's like the guy who stole the, the turkey, the turkey out of your car. I think he's probably even worse than that. Even on, worse, on my word. Even worse than that. Um, and Tibbot is, I mean, he's an absolute brute. He, um, he almost uh, lynches um, uh, Northrop. Um well, they have a fight or something, don't they? They have a fight, right? yeah. And uh, but Ford comes, cuts uh, c- cuts Northrop down. Um, so he's kind of playing the the good guy there. And then Tibbet sells him on to um, a plantation owner called Edwin Epps. And yeah. in the film, he's played by Michael Fassbender. Yeah, you know, I mean, Michael Fassbender always plays the kind of character you don't want to be sold to as a slave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he played Macbeth, didn't he? Yeah, um. yeah, he did. And he played uh, Magneto, I think in the x-men yeah yeah i know you're a big superheroes fan tom well he so those are the ones that i liked those are the ones i saw right so michael fassbender plays the young who plays the older one uh the old is it ian mckellen or patrick ian mckellen. Or yes it's ian yeah. mckellen yes it's ian yeah. mckellen that's right so uh anyway so so he this poor guy northrop go solomon northrop goes to he has to work as a slave in louisiana and 12 years a slave and there he is toiling away 12 years in he meets um a, a canadian who's working on the plantation a guy yeah. called Samuel Bass. And Samuel Bass gets word back to New York. Bass is an abolitionist, is that right? Yes. And it's, it, you know, it's a brave thing for him to do because he's breaking Southern law by doing that. Right. Louisiana law. But in New York, the law of the state provides um, aid to free um, New York citizens who've been kidnapped and enslaved. So it's obviously a kind of massive thing that's going on. I mean, it's... Yeah. It's happening so often that there are state provisions to combat it. Um, and so Northrop's family and his wife, um, Anne Hampton, has stayed true to him. Solomon Northrop has stayed true in his love to Anne. Uh, so, I mean, that's kind of very touching story. Yeah. Um, fact, so, so Northrop's family and friends, they, they enlist the aid of the governor of, York, of New York, a guy called Washington Hunt. And Northrop gains his freedom on this day in 1853. And his kidnappers, ne- you know, nothing happens to them. They never get punished. They never get caught. Uh, yeah, so probably so that's, quite hard to track them down, I suppose. Yeah. Um, later in the year, he gets encouraged to, to write up the story of what's happened. Yeah. And so 12 Years a Slave, it becomes very significant uh, text 
in the abolitionist cause. And Northrop, um, I mean, he, he does quite a lot of campaigning on it. And then he just kind of fades from the record. And do we know what happened to him? Not really, no. But I suppose the book is his memorial, isn't it? The book and the film. Because yeah, the book, the book is one of those film, slave definitely. narratives that um, those, those sort of narratives play a huge part in kind of rousing the hearts and souls of kind of northern opinion in the years before the Civil War, don't they? I, Uncle Tom's Cabin type. I mean, Uncle Tom's Cabin is obviously slightly different, but um, those sort of stories of fugitive slaves and sort of the, the horrors and the sort of the injustice of it, they bring home probably more than any number of tracts, non-political kind of unaffiliated people, just the horror of the institution, don't you think? Well, I think also the, the, the particular impact of this is, ob- I mean, obviously most of the, the, the narratives... Uh, that the abolitionist narratives are for white abolitionists, in, particularly in the North. Yeah. Um, it's it's essentially saying, you know, pity the poor black people, the poor black slaves. But they're still, you know, it, 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 it's very, very difficult for white people in the North to imagine themselves as black slaves. Yeah. But the power of this is that because Solomon Northrup was a free man yeah. in a Northern state, it therefore becomes much easier for white people in the North to put themselves into his shoes. And I think that's the power of it. Because the shock for Northrop isn't that he's been born into slavery or he's been brought from Africa into slavery. He's someone who was born free, who's lived free, and who then becomes a slave. Yeah. And I think that, you know, just uh, kind of emotionally, perhaps, for white readers in the the Northern States, it, it makes the horror of what happened to him all the greater. That's a good story. It's a it's a it's a fascinating story. It reminds me a tiny. I mean, the, the I'll tell you a narrative from a century later that has always stuck in my mind. You may not have, have read it. It's a it's a book called Black Like Me by John Howard Griffin. Have you ever read that? No, I haven't. So this is again a book um, very powerful with white audiences. But the difference here is it's not that um, Griffin was free and became a slave. It was white, and then he he literally blacked up. So he decided, so it's the sort of in the middle of the civil rights movement. And he, I think so it was 19, the 50s. 59. He decides, he goes to a doctor's friend, a doctor friend and a dermatologist. And he says, basically make me black. And they give him um, this sort of, they give him drugs. And he has hours and hours every day under a lamp to sort of darken his skin. And then he, um, he, he puts on a stain on top of it. And then he basically spends, I think something like six weeks, um, maybe longer uh traveling through the south and describing as a white man what it's like, it's like to be black. treated as a black man yeah and uh, and again it's the kind of story that actually uh because he's not black because he's white that kind of gives him an in with readers who might have just dismissed the book and not you know um and and he just sort of talks about what an unbelievable what an eye-opening! So there is a massive, there is a massive change in how he's treated. Isn't yeah, there? colossal. Yeah, of course. Well, he's literally sitting in a different part of the bus, and and course, if he yeah. and his and instinctively, you know, he'll go to the sort of white seats count, uh, counters and things like that, and people glare at him, and he realizes, you know, he he could be. It's not yeah. implausible that he could be killed for being yeah. in the wrong place at the wrong time, the wrong look at the wrong woman, all that kind of thing. Um, so that's a, a little. A very unjolly reading recommendation for the <laughs> Yeah. I mean, t- Twelve Years a Slave. Have you have you read it, Tom? Or just seen I haven't read film? it. I've seen the film. I've seen the film. Yeah. I haven't read the book. But I but I quite feel quite inspired by uh by doing you know, thinking about this to to go and read it. Well it's obviously a harrowing read. Yeah. I mean, unbelievably sort of harrowing story, isn't it? 
to go from, you know, you think you're off to playing a circ violin in the circus and you end up being beaten on the plantation. Um, anyway, um, rather depressing subject. Yeah, sorry about that. No, but it's, <laughs> but, uh, but, it's, but it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, you know, 12 days of Christmas, ho, 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 jollity, jollity. But yeah. I, I mean, basically, things are memorable in history often for terrible reasons. They are, um, aren't they? So we've had murders and coups and enslavement and all kinds of horrors. Yeah. Um, and uh, more fun and jollity after the break. Hello, welcome back to uh, The Rest of History, the 4th of January. Um, and Dominic, you're going to cheer us up by uh, giving your choice for something that happened on this day. So it is the 4th of January, we're in 1960. Albert Camus, the French writer, has just been spending New Year in the south of France at his home in the Vaucluse in a village called Lomarin, um, which I've been to, a very pretty uh, sort of Provencal kind of village um because tom did you know that i spent a year living in provence i did peter male style yes i did as a, as a language teaching, assistant a, and a, yeah i was teaching yeah. I, was, I was awful i was totally out of my head you were wonderful no i was terrible i because they gave you introducing no, uh les étudiants to... it was awful tom i my french was British so bacon and eggs and so i i'd sort of thought oh i'm, I'm terribly good at french this will be an absolute triumph and i arrived in france <laughs> At the age of 21. And I remember going to try and open my bank account so that I could receive my, my minimum wage from the French government. And I stood there in front of this bank manager and I realized I didn't know how to say, <laughs> I'd like to open bank a account. bank account. <laughs> yeah. Because all I'd done is, you know, I've been doing French literature. So I knew how to say, what do you think about... Madame uh, Bovary is Yeah, Madame Bovary. <laughs> yeah. But, but I was utterly out of my depth. I can remember some people, the students used to say to me, you speak quite good French, but why do you speak it with that ludicrous comic English accent? <laughs> <laughs> Which I found very insulting. <laughs> anyway, uh, so Lourmarin, its claim to fame is that this was the um, this was the home of the writer Albert Camus. And Camus, of course, is the sort of, he's a little bit, I don't want to damn him, He's the, but he's the teenager's favourite, isn't he? Yeah, uh, yeah. he looks very cool with a cigarette. It's terribly cool with the cigarettes. His books about existentialism and so on. Although he he, he never defined himself as an existentialist. Did no, he? he didn't. He was and an actually, absurdist. Yeah, exactly. And actually, you know what? Uh, particularly when the pandemic hit, lots of people went back to their copies of La Peste, the plague, and they said, "Oh gosh, this is actually you know, it's a, it's a genuinely it's a really really good book." Um, and the fact that you read it when you were eighteen and you thought it changed your I mean, mm -hmm. that's no reason to sort of curl your lip at it. Yeah, um, well, I, f I feel a bit the same about Nietzsche, to be honest. Really? I've never I was read absolutely Nietzsche. mad for Nietzsche when I was 18, and then I kind of thought, oh, I've grown out of that. Yeah. And now I just thought, he's brilliant. Yeah. So maybe so I should go back to Camus as well. That's sort of what I think about Camus, actually, because Camus was, a, 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 I think, a genuinely a very impressive man, much more impressive than Jean-Paul Sartre, I mean, who's a terrible man by comparison. Yeah. Uh, so Camus, yeah, I'm happy to accept that. He's born in Algeria. Um, and he wrestles all his life with the fact that he's the product of a kind of French pied noir, pied noir settler family yeah. in Algeria. And so he was neutral in the Algerian war. Wasn't he, he was, he was, and you can absolutely understand why a lot of his sort of lefty friends in France, um, sort of thought terribly badly of him and disavowed him for this. Uh, but his attitude was, which was sort of understandable. I mean, he had this famous line, um, I love justice, but I love my mother more. Mm. Um, which was shocking to the kind of Sartrean yeah. tendency because they thought abstract nouns were far more important than people. 
Yes, um, kind of like I hope I would have the courage to betray my country over my friend. Exactly. Reversed. So Camus, he he has been on this kind of intellectual journey. So around about the Second World War, just after the war, and he has a good of, war, doesn't he? I mean, he has yeah. a really good war. So yeah. he edits Combat, exactly, which is the kind of resistance magazine. I mean, he's incredibly brave. He's one of the sort of intellectual heroes of the resistance. Yeah. And afterwards, like so many people in that milieu, he is. So he's this young, uh, very sort of suave, um, but obviously Algerian. So he's got a bit of an outsider side to him very good footballer goalkeeper wasn't he very goalkeeper yeah um where he, play, he played at university in algiers and he could have been he could have been really good couldn't he he got he got that's what people some say disease or something yeah you never know though how whether these things are slightly exaggerated later because he's like john paul the second yeah exactly john paul the yeah. second who almost played in goal for real madrid or something if you <laughs> believe some accounts um yeah. but actually probably just played you know, gold twice or something. <laughs> um, anyway, Camus, he's always a bit of an outsider. He never quite fits in. And there's this period in the sort of late 40s where basically if you're a left-bank intellectual, you're, you're very self-consciously left-wing. You know, and pro-Stalin. Pro-Stalin. Um, Camus, some people say he's a bit more of an anarchist than a communist, but certainly by the 50s, he is moving, he's sort of, he's moving quite strongly in some ways to the centre. You know, he's saying things like, you know, revolutionary violence is not a good thing. So he's kind of the French George Orwell. Yeah, he is exactly. He is exactly. I mean, he's, there's, lo- there's lots of differences, so it's not an exact parallel. But you're absolutely right that he occupies that place yeah. of being the sort of left-wing with a tremendous backstory like Orwell. Very opposed to, to Stalinism. Very opposed to Stalinism and, and, beca- and increasingly sort of interested in human detail, I suppose, and the, and in the texture of human people, ordinary people's lives rather than grand ideological schemes abstractions yeah so he's been given the nobel prize which people see as um they see that as a cold war thing you know they're as almost encouraging him to back towards the center as a bit of a slap in the face well because you know the the only person younger than him to get the nobel prize oh that's a good one i knew he was one of the youngest he was the uh, second youngest uh kipling i was about to say kipling so kipling, yeah. did, kipling must have got it very early then Kipling got it really early, yeah. Uh, but then, and then Camus is the second youngest. Two top writers. I'm very pleased to to see them. Um, I don't imagine they'd have got on though, do you? No, Camus. No, Kipling would have had no time for Camus. Though so, all that sort of smoking and um, and lounging around <laughs> in cafes, Kipling would have been off on you know doing bushcraft or something. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so Camus, he's not terribly happy. I think at the end of the 1950s, although he's got his Nobel Prize for some people in this sort of old intellectual establishment, he's a bit persona non grata. Um, so he's been down at his house in the South for new year, uh, with his family and with his publisher, who's a man called Michel Gallimard and Gallimard's wife and daughter. And, um, they decide they're going to go back to Paris. So on the 2nd of January, Camus' wife and children go off back to Paris on by train. And Camus and Gallimard says to Camus, well, I'll give you a lift if you, you know, stay another couple of days and I'll give you a lift in my very fancy car. Camus, yeah, tremendous. So on the 4th of January, they set off. And basically no one really knows what happens, but they're not that far from Paris. Um, when the car goes off the road and hits a plane tree, and um, Gallimard's wife and daughter escape unscathed. Uh, Camus is killed instantaneously, and Gallimard dies um, a few days later. So, and in the car is the 144-page manuscript 
of what Cameron has written so far, which he th- the novel that he thinks will be his masterpiece, which is called Le Premier Homme, The First Man. And this is going to be his first really autobiographical novel about growing up in Algeria. So a very profound kind of subject, given that the Franco-Algerian War is mm. absolutely in full swing. And he's going to be writing quite lyrically about growing, the experience of growing up in, in Algeria. And of course, that book is never finished, isn't published until I think something like 30 years later, Camus was killed. And at the time, lots of people say, it must be a conspiracy, he must have been murdered by the KGB because of his move back towards the kind of political centre. Um, but almost certainly that's not the case. It's just sort of Gallimard's um, bad driving or whatever. I mean, who knows? Um, not Prince Philip. No. <laughs> Well, Prince Philip obviously has form with uh, Gallic car crashes, <laughs> yes. But uh, but in this case, no, he wasn't involved at all, as far as I know. So I um I studied a for a French at school a play by Camus called Les Justes. Oh yeah, I remember Les Justes. Uh, revolutionaries, Russian revolutionaries. Yes, and and um, the plot of that they have to blow up a a Russian prince or something in a car. That's it. Yeah, a carriage. So kind of death on roads is. An eerie prefiguring. And he wrote a play about Caligula. He did, yeah. Um, yeah. Which I remember doing at A-level. And it ends, Caligula is killed, and the last line is, he shouts, I'm still alive, as he's been <laughs> killed. And then the play ends. Very profound. I have to say, I, f- I find all those 50s French plays, which I studied a lot, I find them terrible. And indeed acted in. <laughs> yeah, well, the Jean Anouy. I mean, yeah. it's all, I'm always happy to mention that on the... Yeah. I think the listeners have probably heard enough about that for- <laughs> time being but i think they're just so all those sartre plays les mansal and stuff dirty hands they're basically people just standing and talking to each other endlessly what is violence you know all this they're dramatically utterly inert um i think but i think camus novels and he wrote a a, a and the myth of sisyphus yes one must think that sisyphus is happy yeah uh i mean that's a kind of memorable tagline yeah, it's a good image. It's a, it's a, it, I mean, that's his sort of statement of the absurd, isn't it? He also yeah. wrote some very interesting short stories called Exile in the Kingdom. Um, a lot of them set in, uh, Algeria, which are kind of quite weird and, um, they're, they're, they've been attacked by critics as a bit orientalizing. Right. Um, but that's kind of inevitable, I, th- I suppose, once you, if you're growing up as part of that sort of settler community surrounded by, you know, North African Muslims. You know what? The very first piece of research I ever did, Tom, was on uh, French colonial Algeria. Yes, you've mentioned this. You've, you have mentioned this. A pogrom in the, in the city of Constantine in 1934. And, well, we're going, we're going to do it. We're going to do the Algerian War. That'd be, that'd be a, a great subject. It's a really fascinating. And, of course, people who came to our live show will know um, we're, we are great fans of the Battle of Algiers. So lots, lots to look forward to on that front. We've got more Gallic, Gallic conduct tomorrow, actually. Yes, we have. Yes. And a stunning rebuke for people who've sometimes said there's not enough French history on this podcast. We're absolutely wallowing in French history. Yeah, the t- we've actually got two French-themed topics tomorrow, but we mustn't reveal what they are. We yeah. need to keep the tension exactly up. Uh, but tomorrow is obviously the most important day of the year, 5th of January, because it's my birthday. Tom Holland's birthday. What a yeah. great moment. Yeah. So, of course, it's not. The, you get two birthdays, don't you? You're like the Queen, because you have your real birthday, and then you have your official Twitter birthday, where people, teenagers in America... Yes, probably. ...send, send yeah, you... Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell them that they want to marry me, which yeah. is lovely. You know, though Sadie doesn't really always comes as a shock to her when she finds it. <laughs> yeah. What are, what are all these messages? 22 year old in Rio de Janeiro is offering herself to me. Um, <laughs> I just bluntly say, no, none of that nonsense. Yeah. 
Right. We'll see you tomorrow. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like gall. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe. <laughs>